0: Welcome
1: to a special edition of the Weekly Appellate Report for this October 11th, 2018. taking a time out today from our usual coverage of trending appellate cases and issues to honor and to visit with an attorney who in no small measure has really made appellate practice what it is today. He is Ellis Horvitz, referred to by many as the Dean of the California Appellate Bar. He charted a novel professional course he started his solo appellate practice in the 1950s at a time when appeals were generally handled by the same attorneys who saw the case through trial or by appellate divisions of larger full-service firms. Small, boutique, appellate-only shops really didn't exist, but that did not deter Ellis Horbitz, whose solo operations slowly but steadily grew into a cornerstone of California appellate practice. That firm, Horvitz & Levy, regarded by many as the state's preeminent appellate-focused firm. On last Friday, October 5th, Mr. Horvitz was honored by the California Lawyers Association and took his rightful place as the inaugural member of that organization's Appellate Lawyer Hall of Fame. That honor was conferred by California Supreme Court Justice Ming Chin in San Francisco. Prior to the ceremony, Mr. Horvitz was kind enough to speak with us, share a bit about his career and about appellate practice. We'll hear from him in just a few minutes. First, we're joined by two gentlemen whose career paths have been deeply influenced by Ellis. I might mention here at the outset: uh, the the sound quality in this initial segment is a bit substandard, despite our best post-production efforts. But uh, do stick through it; the sound quality improves quite a bit for the conversation I had with uh, Ellis Horvitz. But that said, we are happy to be joined now on the phone by two longtime partners from Horvitz and Levy. One is a partner. David Axelrat. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm also honored to be joined by the second half of this very seminal appellate law partnership, Barry Levy. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. First one for you, Barry, you have been with the firm for now just a bit over 40 years. Um, going back to, when you joined the firm in 1977, uh, Mr. Horwitz had been in practice for a, a while, but could you tell me what just a bit about how that partnership formed in 1977. What drew you to Ellis Horvitz and um, what uh, the practice was like at that point?
2: Well, I joined Ellis uh, as an associate. Uh, I had been working for the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office in their appellate division, and I was leaving the office and wanted to do appellate practice. And I asked around, and I was told that Ellis was the man in uh, appellate practice and there really wasn't firms, boutique firms, or, you know, doing appellate practice. Ellis had an association with, um, I think it was three or four other lawyers at that time. Um, and I, I contacted Ellis and, uh, it worked out. He was very close with a couple of the judges who knew me and knew my work, and it was on that basis that I joined Ellis, and then uh, I worked as, as an associate. Uh, but when I started practicing with Ellis, it was like my eyes really opened up to how you practice a quality appellate law. Um, everything was done on a team basis. There was a team approach to every case, then, you know, a couple of years later, I became a partner with Ellis on um, the firm became Horwitz and Levy. But to this day, we still practice the same way, a team approach to every case. And both members of the team, one, two, you know, three, four people, whatever it takes to make the case work, all participate in it. Everybody is a working partner in the firm. And it's been a great experience. And, We've been very fortunate, and we've we've grown, and we think we keep getting better.
1: Mr. Levy, could, could I ask you, at, at that time when you joined up with the firm, as you say, there were not that many small boutique operations that exclusively worked on appeals. Did it seem like a viable thing that a small firm could subsist only on taking cases after they'd been to trial? Did it seem like the sort of thing that could grow into what your firm has become?
2: Well... I think we we believed we could continue practicing uh, as a appellate firm as we started to grow we never thought about it as something that you would intentionally grow just to get bigger uh, the growth of the firm over the years and I, I think David might have something to say about this as well has been organic we've grown as we've had the work and we needed to do the work for our clients. And therefore, we grow when the right attorney uh, is available and joins us. We've never just done it where we want to be a bigger firm.
1: David, if I could ask you, so you joined with the firm a few years after Barry in 1982. At that time, what attracted you to the, the young Horvitz and Levy and also as Barry was saying, what what in your view contributed to the firm's very consistent uh, growth over the last 40 years or so? Uh, What's in your view allowed it to to really flourish?
3: Well, I had been doing uh, appellate practice in a a larger firm for a year prior to joining the firm. But during the course of, uh, of interviewing, I had met Ellis and I was very interested in their firm. There just weren't any openings at the time but when an opening came along I immediately applied and was fortunately uh, given an offer to join the firm and I was very attracted to the you know the specialized practice and to the small group of very collegial attorneys uh, that, uh, that were working in the firm but one of the first experiences that i had when i joined the firm was i was assigned to work on a case with ellis directly he was he was the senior founding partner but he took the time to work with me the 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 newest attorney in the firm to help train me and educate me into his understanding and his philosophy of appellate practice so what i learned there was not only the value of the team approach that barry mentioned but also the intensive editing and revising and refining of the work product so as to produce the, the most effective uh, written communication possible. I also learned what has been and continues to be some of the hallmarks of our firm and that is the need for absolute fidelity and 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 faithfulness to the to the factual record and to the and to the law that's that's applied to the factual record, because accuracy in your in your presentation to the court as well as the persuasiveness of your presentation means that you have credibility with the courts. Ellis taught me that the credibility that you bring to, uh, to the courts in your presentation on appeal is sort of the, uh, you know, the coin of the realm. And with that credibility, uh, you know, your, your reputation, your ability to persuade is, is, is materially enhanced. And over the years, one, you know, one, of the, one of the most important aspects of our practice uh, has been and continues to be the reputation for trustworthiness and reliability that we have with the courts concerning our written product. So that first case that that I worked on with Ellis taught me so many things about the fundamentals of of our uh, specialized appellate practice and those those fundamental values have been communicated to each one of the attorneys in the firm and that's one of the reasons that the firm has grown and prospered because as we've added attorneys, as our reputation has, has expanded, each one of those attorneys continues on with that tradition of high quality persuasion that, is all, that also has absolute uh, credibility with, with, with the courts. Um, what Ellis also taught me, which is again, another hallmark of our practice is the value of a collective collaborative approach to the work on the cases. You know the clients who come into our firm Ellis has always taught us are not clients of any individual attorney they're clients of the firm as a whole and, the, and when a client comes in that client gets the, gets the benefit of the collective expertise and experience of the entire firm which may sound like it's, it's going to be much more expensive because you have you may have all these different attorneys providing input to the case but what actually happens is that it's much less expensive and much more economical because by tapping into the collective expertise of the firm you avoid reinventing the wheel and you and you you actually achieve a much greater efficiency in your approach to to casework, so, so the the collective, the value of a collective, collaborative approach, which Ellis taught to us, has also remained a major hallmark of our firm.
1: Um, Barry, if I could ask you, um, I imagine those qualities and those approaches that uh, Ellis brought to the firm, the collaborative focus and the scrupulous fidelity to the record and honesty with the court are qualities that you would say also have helped the firm grow. Are there any other um, qualities that that Mr. Horvitz also brings as an appellate practitioner or the leader of the firm that you think in particular um, helped provide the foundation for for the firm that's grown to be what it is?
2: Yes, I do. Um, A couple of things come to mind. One of the things I think I learned from Ellis, and I think every one of the attorneys that have Joined us and have grown with us is that to do this kind of work as David was describing it. One of the keys to doing it is preparation. Uh, I I learned from Ellis, and I could I learned it by not him just telling this to us, but just watching him do it. It didn't matter if he was writing a brief, an appellate brief or he was counseling a client, or he was preparing to speak to a bar group about something, he put in intense preparation to know as much about the subject and what you were going to be doing as possible. That included the preparation for oral argument. His intensity in that was almost legendary. I mean, I I can remember going to court with Ellis one of the first times. And I was carrying the briefcase You know, as the young associate. And I still believe if I hadn't reached in front of him and opened the courtroom door, he would have walked right through it. He was so intense. And that intensity was reflected in the work that he did. And I think we all tried to follow that. Another thing to answer your question that I think we all got from Ellis was he demanded and expected the highest quality work. That we would do whatever we needed to do to turn out the best piece of work we could do. And that kind of demand and expectation has carried forward and I hope it will always will with this firm. And finally I'd close with uh, another important lesson I I learned, and I think the firm learned from Ellis, was to practice law with civility. You had to respect the courts, respect your clients, and respect your opposition. And Ellis always did that, and I think we, we tried very hard to practice in that same way.
1: Just one, one last one, and uh, David, I'll ask you to jump in first here, but um, Barry, I hope you'll also add some thoughts. Yep. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like an, an accident that over the past few decades, the the growth of the firm has really sort of coincided with the growth of um, appellate practice in, in California more generally and the notion um, of having an, just a, an appellate-focused line of work, of being an appellate attorney solely. Um could you speak a bit about you know, what kind of impact that uh, Mr. Horace has had just on the the practice of appellate law in in California um, in in a more general sense?
3: Well, I, I, that, that's a very good question. I think you know Ellis was really one of the the pioneers in spe, in appellate specialization. Uh, as Barry mentioned, there were not appellate boutiques uh, back when Ellis started practicing appellate law. Um, And uh, I I think that uh, uh, the quality uh, of the work that Ellis did uh, led people over time to appreciate a very different perspective that appellate counsel can bring to a case, either consulting in the trial court before there's an appeal in order to help set up the record or after there's been a judgment and the case needs to go up on appeal. So Ellis really led the way in educating uh, not only the legal community but also um, uh, the, the you know the the clients, the consumers of legal services, concerning the value of high-quality appellate advocacy as a separate and distinct form of legal practice, and and the consequence is that there are uh, you know uh, many more. Uh, not only individual appellate practitioners, but there are a number of small boutiques and there are appellate practice groups in most any large firm. Because over the years, uh, through the leadership of people like Ellis in, a, in establishing the, uh, this, this specialized practice, um, you know, appellate advocacy has emerged as its own um, uh, specialized uh, form of legal practice.
2: I, I think David has said it so perfectly, I, I, you know, Ellis led the way, but, you know, a lot of people have recognized that this provides a very useful service, and clients know it. And frankly, when one party engages appellate counsel, that creates uh, some thoughts, and, and the other party, maybe they need to engage appellate counsel. So, the more people doing this specialized practice and the better they practice at it, the more need there is, the more requests there are for it.
1: I appreciate you, gentlemen, both being on, on the podcast. Uh, Mr. David Axelrad, thanks very much for being on the show.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate
1: it. And, and, and Barry Levy, thank you as well.
2: Well, thank you. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks again to David Axelrod and Barry Levy for sharing their thoughts. It's time now to hear from the dean of the California Appellate Bar himself. It is an honor to welcome to the show, Ellis Horvitz. Mr. Horvitz, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Mr. Horvitz, you are, of course, the founding partner of Horvitz & Levy, a firm you built over a span of several decades, and the name of which has essentially become synonymous with appellate law excellence. It's fair to say, and you will presently be inducted in the California Lawyers Association's Appellate Lawyer Hall of Fame. It will be the inaugural inductee, and very physically so, so congratulations, first of all, on that recognition. Thank you. I would like to, to get into the, your long and illustrious career that will now be enshrined in that uh, Hall of Fame, but maybe first we could back up to before it began. I'd be curious what led you in into law school, if, if being an attorney was something that you – had had in mind for a long time.
0: Well, I tell you, when I was in law school, uh, when I was in law school, I was absolutely certain that I would never set foot in a courtroom. My ambition was to work in the federal government in some major uh, public welfare program. And uh, the idea of going to court was just uh, not in my plans at all. And in fact, when I got out of school, I applied for and, and received a job from the federal government in the uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission, uh, which at that time was getting involved in a new piece of legislation to uh, to allow for the uh, peaceful uh, uses of Atomic Energy, and uh, the head of that agency was a man named David Lilienthal, who was the quintessential good public bureaucrat, and uh, he was, at that time, the head of the Atomic Energy Commission. Unfortunately, there was a job freeze on in the federal government, and uh, no additional hiring until the job freeze was lifted. It was an economy measure. And uh, so I was waiting around to go to work and uh, waiting for a call that the freeze had lifted. And two, three months went by. And I thought I'd better start looking. And by sheer coincidence, uh, I bumped into uh, Stanford. Stanford Law School's a placement director, Professor Brenner, and uh, he asked me what I was doing, and I told him, and he said, can you keep waiting uh, and much longer? And I said, no, it's very tough. I, I don't have a job, and my parents are helping as much as they can. And uh, he told me, come on down to campus tomorrow. I want to see you. He said, uh, there's an opening with the Chief Justice, uh, and I want you to apply I went to see him, and uh, he arranged an appointment for me to uh, see the chief and his staff, and uh, I talked to the person on the staff who was arranging the meeting, and uh, she set up the appointment. Uh, I went in to see the chief, and uh, he uh, he offered me the job. So uh, I accepted, and again, with no thought of becoming an appellate lawyer, but I was I really knew nothing much about law practice then or the practical day-to-day affairs of a law practice. Uh, but I was just barely smart enough to know that uh, uh, having a clerk for the Chief Justice on my resume uh, couldn't, couldn't hurt me and, indeed, might be very helpful. So uh, I, I worked for the Chief uh, about a year and a half, and the atomic energy job opened again, and so I went to that job. But during the year and a half uh, I spent with the chief uh, totally transformed my view of the law. The, the chief was a, uh, a very strict, uh, demanding teacher, but he was a devoted mentor and teacher. And uh, I really learned to become a lawyer uh, in the time I spent with the chief. He was uh, a, a wonderful teacher, a wonderful person. And uh, that experience, although I didn't know it at the time, uh, would ultimately uh, turn me into an appellate lawyer. I I worked for the federal government for a while, and uh, uh, I found it quite boring. So uh, just working on contracts, which were pretty much standard, so uh, I decided to go into practice and uh, come to Los Angeles from San Francisco and uh, started to practice really not knowing anything of how you find clients, of uh, what groups to belong to, uh, how to meet other lawyers. I was really uh, very young and very naive. So the first few years were, I would say, really lean years. And the one thing I knew I had a very good grasp of was the appellate process and uh, brief writing, and that I had learned from the Chief Justice. And uh, I had a lot of free time, so I I found myself uh, teaching three courses, uh, one in constitutional law at one of the state colleges, another in uh, government contracts at UCLA, And the third, and what proved to be the most important one, was uh, teaching appellate practice at uh, USC Law School. And uh, at USC at the time, in the 60s, if you taught appellate practice, you had to teach trial practice. And of course, I knew nothing about trial practice, so I invited the best trial lawyers in each field to appear as guest lecturers. And, uh, which was a very wise thing, they were just marvelous. And uh, ultimately, one of those attorneys, uh, a man named Raul Magana, who was a a marvelous trial lawyer, decided to send me an appeal, and we won that one. And then over the next couple of years, I I handled about 16 appeals for him. And I, I think we won 15 of them, which uh, it served me in good stead because the, the, the people uh, I was defeating on the other side started calling me. And the, the economics of, of spreading the, uh, the base of the practice was obvious. And, uh, and from that point on, uh, my practice really, really took off. And uh, as it took off, uh, you know, I could have, I I suppose, stayed a single practitioner and just refused new cases, but I tell you, I've had several lean years, and I was, uh, I so appreciated uh, all the calls I was getting that I took them on and uh, uh, hired lawyers to help me, and uh, and the practice really boomed from then on to this day.
1: It it certainly did. and. And does I just wanted to pull out maybe a thread or two from your early career. Um, Was there anything in particular from your first few years after school, or perhaps with Chief Justice Phil Gordon, that changed you from being someone who, as you say in law school, felt felt somewhat disinclined to have a practice that would put you frequently in court? Into someone whose entire very illustrious career ended up being built on your masterful facility as an advocate in the courtroom
0: certainly my experience with Chief Justice Jefferson was uh, is what uh, ended me up as an appellate attorney he was a a marvelous teacher for one very demanding and uh, I learned that that's that's the way you do things everything we did he wanted our best effort and uh, that's what we gave him one of the lawyers on his staff just clued me in very briefly what the job would be like and uh i observed uh, the devotion that existed between the chief and his staff and i realized uh, this was going to be a good experience uh it proved to be better than i had imagined i i i didn't select the appellate field uh, It selected me, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, that's where cases uh, started coming in. I had cases in a couple of other fields that related to uh, government contracts, and I taught a course in it, but uh, uh, that was not a major field that a a single young lawyer could break into. The appellate field was uh, more likely... And I was well trained in the appellate field uh, by the chief. So I was very confident uh, that I knew uh, what to do in an appellate court, in an appellate case.
1: Sort of by the by, uh, Chief Justice Gibson was a pretty interesting fellow. He served as chief justice for 24 years, I think the second longest tenured. But before that, he had served on the front in, in World War One, I, I believe, as a lieutenant, as part of the American Expeditionary. Uh, force. He was in London after the war for a couple of years, and then I think maybe just a, a few years before you started your clerkship, he had cast what would be a, a deciding vote and a four-three opinion overturning a, a state ban on interracial marriage, which was predated the uh, the Supreme Court's treatment of that issue in Loving, Virginia. Um, I think something like yeah, years that Yeah, uh,
0: that uh, that may have been Traynor, but uh, when I worked for him. I do remember the Safe Fuji case mm. in which he was the deciding vote uh, in the, declaring the uh, California legislation which forbid uh, certain uh, aliens from owning land. Mm. And he passed a deciding vote uh, on that case, uh, was the Sefuji case, uh, when I was working for him. I didn't work on that case, but it was the headline in the Saturday morning paper. I remember. And uh, I went down to the court, uh, let myself in, got a copy of the opinion and uh, uh, read it uh, in my office. And uh, I tell you, I was so proud of working for him uh, at that moment that I cried.
1: Right. That that was the the California alien land law in that decision. And uh, I, I looked up this case before I called and researching some of the court's big rulings from that time. Uh, so Chief Justice Gibson wrote that, and I'm quoting here, the California alien land law is obviously designed and administered as an instrument for effectuating racial discrimination. That decision sounds obvious enough now as you describe it, but was set against the backdrop of a 1952 uh, foreign-born Japanese-Americans like the plaintiff being ineligible for citizenship under U.S. naturalization laws. and So that was certainly a, a consequential and, and progressive ruling at the time, issued uh, not long after the, the U.S. Supreme Court rendered its own decision pertaining to uh, Asian American immigrants. It's one that has not stood the test of time. That was the Korematsu the case dealing with World War II-era detentions. In any event, uh, let's move on to your time setting up shop as a solo practitioner focusing on appeals work. That niche did not really exist at that point. It was more common for attorneys to hang on to cases from sort of start to finish through the appeal, and specializing as an appellate practitioner wasn't a you know, particularly well-trod career path for folks. Did it take any of your colleagues by surprise when when you uh, set upon this particular design, and, and what, I guess, made you confident that you could find a, a path forward in, in such a career path, even though it Really, before you started on it, didn't seem to exist too too clearly.
0: Well, I tell you, at uh, at that time, there were a few, very few that I knew, solo practitioners who uh, only did appeals. Uh, I can think of three or four, and mostly in the uh, personal injury defense field. Uh, by and large. Major firms did their own appeals, and uh, the the major litigation firms uh, had uh, somebody in the firm who would specialize in appeals and the trial lawyers uh, uh a great many of them uh simply handled their own appeals and uh, if they were handling their own appeals, they would have a younger person do it uh until they were Let's say uh, grown up enough to uh, to become trial lawyers, which is, is what most of these young lawyers wanted to do. So uh, I was uh, you know, one more individual practitioner uh, looking for clients, and uh, in time uh, I, I met them uh, through my teaching at USC, which uh, which surprised me because that wasn't what I had in mind at the time. It it just didn't occur to me. Uh, some people are just naturally good at uh, attracting clients. Uh, I had a couple of friends like that. Their practices took off like rockets, mm-hmm. but mine didn't. Mine started slowly, and uh, it wasn't that I planned uh, I planned to do that, but uh, let's say the the trial lawyers and the uh, uh, and the clients uh, found me rather than I went out looking for them and found them. So uh, my, my own ability at getting, at getting out and attracting clients, I think, was quite limited. I remember at one bar meeting, uh, there was a, a, a justice on the Court of Appeal, Parker Wood, uh, who uh, I saw at the bar meeting, and he claimed over to me. And I'd been in his court a couple of times. And he said, Mr. Horvitz, do you know anybody? And I said, no, I really don't. And he said, well, come with me. Let me introduce you. And I still remember that. It was uh, it was uh, such a lovely gesture on his part that he recognized that I was standing around not knowing what you do at a bar meeting. <laughs> and he took me around and introduced me to a few people.
1: So as you say, there were a few lean years to start, but then things began to grow. Walk me through how your solo shop began to, to slowly grow and take on new partners, many of whom remain with the firm to this day.
0: Well, i tell you, I, I just hired as I needed somebody. O- originally, uh, uh, I h- hired uh, people who had clerked at the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court, and uh, uh, several of them uh, wanted their own practices, and uh, they went out and started and, uh, uh they wanted to, in effect, you know, be a solo practitioner and run their own show, and uh, which is exactly what I had done. So uh, when they left, I would uh, send them a number, a number of cases to maybe give them a little easier time than I had. In it. But uh, as the firm started to build, uh, uh, I had people who, who would stay, and, uh, and that. It really, it, uh, it was about 1982. Oh, Barry, when Barry Levy joined mm-hmm. me, I guess he joined in 19, I think 1978, and uh, we simply started building a firm. And the lawyers, the lawyers came to stay. And uh, I, I told them when I interviewed them that you know we have no individual clients; they're all firm clients, and uh, we want people. Uh, uh, who are able to uh, enjoy their partner's successes, sure. and uh, at that time, uh, a lot of the law firms had become uh, very internally competitive. There was a lot of discussion about it, and uh, we decided to go the other way, where uh, everybody who came would come to stay and to you know help help build a firm. That exists.
1: approach, the, the principal element you credit in explaining how your firm has come to be what it is really, a cornerstone of appellate law practice in the state. Um, are there other factors that you think explain the firm's stable and consistent emergence?
0: Well, w- one thing uh, uh, that I think is important to, to keep in mind is the, uh, the explosive growth of litigation in the court system in California following World War II. Uh, when I started, just uh, let's take the second district, uh, when I started practicing, there were three panels of justices uh, in the second district, and each of those uh, panels had three judges. Uh, so all the members of each panel would sit on all the cases. Uh, By the time I I retired and even before that those three panels had grown to eight panels and instead of three judges per panel there were four judges per panel. So and uh, originally when we only had nine justices writing opinions they would turn out about forty opinions a year and that number grew to almost a hundred. I found myself in a growth industry, and uh, other than that, we just stuck to what we were doing, and uh, we became more skillful as we were. uh, We we had a very, very good win-loss record over the years. I think that's still in place. And uh, uh, our name got around uh, because of the numbers and kinds of cases we were getting into. And, uh, uh, the word would get around, including out of state, uh, so that, uh, national out of state firms, when they had California litigation, uh, would, would frequently, uh, call us. I, I must tell you, it, it just happened. You, there's a lot of these things you, you can't plan, although there are things you can do, uh, to make yourself Available and uh, to have uh, hopefully a good thing said about you. So uh, it isn't anything we specifically planned, it just uh, occurred as as the quantity and quality uh, of clients uh, continued to grow.
1: That win-loss record, that um, consistent yeah. s- string of successes that um, you and your firm were able to compile, certainly. Attributable to to your own and your firm's um, talents, uh, but some of that must be from finding and and picking the right cases, good cases to bring on appeal. Would you say that's true? And if, if so, you know how how do you go about finding the right case to to bring um, on
0: appeal? Uh, well, first of all, it's something that's quite easy to do. You immediately screen out. Uh, frivolous appeals, uh, that you just don't do. Uh, beyond that, uh, one of the things which we became very good at was evaluating appeals and then leveling with the client and, uh, telling the client, uh, uh, this is what we foresee and, uh, sometimes, and explaining why. And sometimes our suggestion was don't take this appeal. And for a variety of reasons uh, or sometimes let's say uh, uh, if the party won below we might uh, suggest to them when the other side appeals that the other side has a very strong position and if you're in settlement discussions uh, you should uh, keep that in mind Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, there was a whole process we developed of Evaluating appeals and uh, then sharing those evaluation, evaluations with the client. And uh, sometimes it would look like it might not be a good appeal, but it would be a case that simply recurred and recurred and recurred uh, in various situations. And we would caution the client that if you lose on the first one, that might be... Uh, race judicata. In other cases, uh, one of the major, major pieces of legislation we handled uh, was getting uh, the the Supreme Court to uh, uphold the 1975 uh, passage of the micro case, which created special rules of liability and compensation. there's a very strong chance of reversal so we're really putting our own neck in on on the line and uh, telling the client if you know that uh, they have a good chance of appeal and they might want to hang in there and uh, uh, other other times it goes the other way sometimes the client would follow our advice sometimes not because the decision whether or not to settle is really a client decision uh, with guidance to be sure but uh, uh, the person who signs the check uh, is the one who has the final word on that. Mm-hmm. Uh What goes into the brief would be our final decision. Uh, we had trouble with clients sometimes who wanted to control the brief process, and we told them, you can't do that. We tell them you came to us because we have a good reputation, and we didn't get a good reputation by putting our names on briefs that somebody else wrote. We wouldn't do that.
1: Yeah, that's... Um one uh, hallmark of your firm's success is the quality and the robustness of the, the filings you submit have submitted um, to courts what um what are some of the things that you look for or that you try to include and what are some strategies that you apply um, when you are writing writing your appellate briefs uh, what what things should appellate lawyers have in mind
0: well uh they developed a process in training the other attorneys, which they now have passed down to newer attorneys coming in. The first thing is integrity in brief writing, which means uh, truthfully representing what's in the record and uh, what the research in the case shows, uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and you have to confront it all. And... uh, Uh, I recall in one case uh, early on when uh, Justice De who was one of our great justices, uh, asked me a question about a court of appeal decision, Uh, how did I distinguish it? And uh, I said, I can't, it's against me, but uh, we think it was wrongly decided. And I think that was the beginning of a friendship with Justice De uh, because uh, I, I didn't try to uh, come up with an answer that do- dodged the uh, the question, and the case was against me, and uh, I said so. And uh, a lot of lawyers, too, too many, and especially those inexperienced uh, in handling appeals, uh, will well, either fudge the facts or give a a misleading interpretation of what the leading authorities are uh so i would say the the, the first and most important thing is integrity uh with the courts and uh uh it, it it's also dumb not to do that because the record is frozen and both the court and the attorneys know what's in the record so Uh, that would be the first thing. Uh, The second thing was uh, the issue selection. Uh, In many cases there are just too many issues around and we consider it much wiser as appellants to raise a very few issues that are strong and uh, uh, judge the outcome accordingly. Other things are uh, readability. Is this brief readable? And there are too many uh, uh, appellate attorneys. Uh, and we tend to be a bookish lot. Uh, we're very different from the trial lawyers. We're a bookish lot. And we'll write things that are not easy to follow. And I know when, when I was editing other attorneys' briefs, if I had to read a sentence or a paragraph twice to figure out what they were really saying, that that section would have to be rewritten so that it would be uh, you know completely legible and uh, easy to follow. And uh, lawyers had uh, varying skills in uh, st- explaining things simply and uh, fluidly uh, in their writing and we would we would spend a lot of time on that a lot of the things that i had used in teaching uh i simply transferred over from the classroom to the office and uh in the office at a at a more sophisticated level and so that process has continued down from one group of attorneys to the next to the next and so and, uh and no document goes out uh, either opinion letters or briefs uh, without somebody other than the author reviewing it and uh, commenting on it. I don't know if that still happens in every case with letters, but I'm confident it does happen with briefing because uh, that system is, uh, uh, is just uh, fundamental to how we work, that there's always more than one person in the, either in the writing in the editing and the supervising process and issue selection, etc. Uh, two people have to con- concur and uh, ultimately uh, come up sometimes with compromises on issues, whether they should be included and if so uh, how should they be explained and uh, if so, should that be the first issue or the last issue? And uh, generally, I like to lead off with the strongest issue. Sometimes that's not appropriate. So uh, the teaching process just happens. When a lawyer comes in, they're exposed to that process immediately. And we've had some lawyers who didn't want to stay because they wanted to write all their own stuff and file it and didn't like being edited, and we we couldn't allow that.
1: As to the the other main aspect of appellate advocacy, presenting arguments before the court and at oral argument. Um, you have long been known for um, having a, a calm demeanor, a gentlemanly approach, almost a professorial uh, style before courts. Um, I assume a lot of that is is natural, but in what ways do you think that that sort of approach may be as compared to a more ardent or um, fighting style uh, is is advantageous for uh, appellate advocates at uh, an oral argument?
0: Let's put it this way. People have to talk the way they normally talk. And uh, some people are are more flamboyant in delivery uh, than others. Uh, Trial lawyers tend to be uh, more, uh, not flamboyant, but just uh, outspoken. Uh, Somebody's flamboyant in in many ways interesting, but they're presenting their arguments usually to a jury. Mm And when you're going before uh, three judges who, uh, thank God in California, uh, have been selected from among our best lawyers, uh, you have to approach the case at uh, their level. And they will let you know, a silent court is a tough one to argue before, but they'll let you know with their questions what you should be talking about. Mm. And... uh, for about six years at USC, uh, I team taught an appellate seminar uh, with Bob Thompson, who was the justice on the Court of Appeal, and a, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant judge, and uh, he would tell us how frustrated he and his colleagues would be when lawyers would not figure out what the court was interested in because they didn't listen to... The questions the court was asking so that's that's one point you know when the court asks you a question you may be right in the middle of your most important point and the question may seem to you to be irrelevant but you stop what you're talking about and you answer the court's question Uh, as between writing the briefs and answering the questions uh, writing the brief is far and away the most important part. Usually by the time you come up for argument, uh, the court has a tentative decision already written. And uh, the question is, uh, well, first of all, if you feel the court's questions indicate uh, uh, you are probably going to win, then probably the best thing to do is just shut up and sit down. Uh, sometimes, uh, Sometimes more than that is necessary but uh, it's a good thing to keep in mind. If the court's against you, that's when you're really challenged to give your best argument. What can you say in an oral argument that might turn the court in your favor? And uh, a number of justices over the years have talked to about this, and uh, they usually say, oh, about 10 to 15% of the time, uh, uh, we will change our mind to... Uh, Uh, about how the case should be decided, and it will be rewritten uh, based based upon what we heard in oral argument. Uh, I think that figure is pretty high. You don't really know, you as the attorney don't really know what decided, you know, what was determinative for the court, but in my own experience, I can count on one hand the number of cases where I'm absolutely convinced that the my argument made a difference in how the case was decided.
1: In cases like that, what, um, what do you think it was that, uh, that allowed you to, to turn some of the judges around or, or change the court's mind um, that had been swaying the, the other direction?
0: Well, two cases come to mind. One uh, was a case, uh, it was really a battle, I think, between two insurance companies. And uh, Justice DeBreener was one of the uh, liberal members of the court, but in this case, he joined uh, three conservative members of the court, and I'm sure it arose from something uh, I was able to point out in oral argument that uh, the court had missed because it didn't relate directly to the issues, but it had a big impact on the, uh, on the ultimate decision. And uh, it had to do with a particular clause in one of the two contracts in dispute. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I made this point in oral argument, uh, Justice uh, tobriner said, uh, where does that appear? Where does that appear, Mr. Horvitz? And so I cited the exact provision of the contract that was involved. And uh, he took notes, and was very attentive to that point. And the fact that he would normally have been on the other side in that case, I think, uh, was changed because uh, I was able to point out that provision. Uh, In another case, I was uh, in the case with uh, Amicus Curia, as as Amicus Curia, and uh, the lead attorney in the case, uh, you know, asked me if I would take some of the time because it was an issue that affected uh, a lot of our clients. And uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, that's, it was Raoul Kennedy uh, who argued. And uh, Ralph was one of the few people who was, was, is an excellent lawyer, both at trial and on appeal. And uh, a young lawyer in his firm was then a law a member of the Supreme Court was lecturing the class about uh, at Hastings about uh, how a certain case was changed in oral argument. argue a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. I was in my hotel room in Washington the night before argument, and uh, I didn't know the facts of my case. I hadn't read the briefs, and I was waiting in my room for somebody to tell me what the case was about. And uh, I would wake up, and I realized that uh, there was a stress element going on in preparing for oral argument. Uh, late late in the day that I, I just uh, I couldn't confront anymore so uh, in the in the last few years, uh, I, I simply refused to argue more cases. I loved to do it but only when I had time to prepare.
1: I'd be curious to ask you to, to, to speak a bit about really the, the history of the California Supreme Court that you, having argued before it for a uh, such a broad span of time have have witnessed some ideological shifts from right to left and and back again and, and again um in your view in what ways I guess, has the has the high court of the state changed as you've argued before and perhaps also in any in what ways has uh, appellate advocacy more generally um, changed as you've been um, you know, as as your career has gone on
0: i would say there's been surprisingly little change in the process and uh, in evaluating the Supreme Court in my early days and in my later days I would say the changes occurred in me when I was a very young lawyer in a period uh, uh, before judges who were a generation my senior senior. there was a, a greater element of awe than later on uh, we had Justice uh, Trainer, who most people will say was probably uh, the greatest uh, judge California's ever had. Uh, you had Chief Justice Gibson, who, as you pointed out, served 24 years uh, on the bench, and uh, it, it was his courtroom. He ran a strict courtroom. And then on through the years, there were still other great justices that came along. But I was... Uh, My contemporaries, uh, uh, that element of law was replaced uh, by uh, uh, an element of understanding that, uh, put it this way, they were of my generation. I understood them better. And I would ask myself, you know, if I was deciding this case, what would influence me the most? And that's where oral argument would focus. And uh, I argued in a number of cases as uh, Amicus Curiae, where uh, I would extract just a single issue from the case to address the court on, and uh, I would uh, take just you know five or ten minutes, one issue only. Uh, could it make a difference? Um, so. The changes are uh, not so much in the court as uh, in uh, my perception of the court. And as I got older, my own perception changed.
1: So, uh, apropos, sort of, of the, the Supreme Court nomination hearings from this past week, and really the the political storm that has attended those hearings that that goes on as we're speaking. Um, it's uh, you know. You will often hear it said that that courts, or at least the U.S. Supreme Court, has has become more political. Uh, seems more politicized. Um, in in your perception, from having practiced before, uh, you know, courts going back for a number of years, have have you sensed that that politics factor in more? Uh, so in the judicial branches, or um, you know, it seems like you certainly witnessed some pretty um, political. Tumult during your time, just to name one instance, the recall election of, of Byrd and two other uh, justices from the California Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, do you think that's a kind of a misperception that that things are more tinged with political um, ideologies now as as previously?
0: Well, I think the U.S. Supreme Court is much more politicized than it used to be. Uh, it uh, years ago. Uh, Oh, I'm going way back to when, let's say, Frankfurter and Black were on the court, and uh, 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 Roosevelt appointees, uh, I believe both were. And uh, the interesting thing there is uh, uh, Frankfurter was viewed as a wild-eyed liberal from Harvard Law School, uh, and he turned out to be the most brilliant Mm -hmm. man but he turned out to be the most conservative member of the court. Hugo Black was from the South, and as a young man, had been member of the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. and he turned out to be the most liberal member of the court. Both were brilliant. Both were brilliant writer, writers. But they were appointed on the merits, and uh, uh, their prior politics. Uh, didn't bar them from being appointed, and I would say it's only in uh, the past 30 years that the courts have become politicized, and now uh, it's it's become politicized to uh, a shameful degree. Uh, The Senate refused to even consider uh, Justice uh, Garland uh, as an appointee, and now it's being reversed uh, with the battle going on with Justice Kavanaugh, much more politicized. The California Supreme Court, it was, became politicized in 1986 when uh, three justices were not recruited. That was strictly a political thing, and I thought that was, uh, that was a, a, a tragedy. Uh, now, with Brown's appointees, I haven't been following that closely because I've been retired. But uh, I find his his appointments very, very interesting. Uh, in a way, it's 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 good. It's uh, this are not necessarily all people you know who have been trial court and court of appeal justices, and uh, uh, with uh, largely unknown political ideologies, mm. uh, because. Uh, uh, when people get to a high court, uh, they they change the job changes there, and uh, so remains to be seen uh, what Governor Brown does with his last remaining appointment before uh, he retires. But uh, I, I find it very interesting watching who his appointments are, and they have very interesting backgrounds. And so, it's, if you if you if you're a court watcher, uh, if you're a court watcher now. And uh, intently following, uh, I find it uh, uh, very exciting and enjoyable to, uh, uh, to watch that.
1: Maybe just um, one last one. Could you have uh, imagined having the career that has unfolded, leading so many others to practice appellate law as a specialty, growing an eminently respected firm, rightly being given the sobriquet, the dean of the California Appellate Bar, and now receiving this honor?
0: Oh my. Well, I tell you, I feel very honored by it. it it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, something that didn't exist until now. <laughs> and, uh, I've been retired and getting older and, uh, uh, you know, full of aches and pains and those things. So to have this suddenly occur, is, you know, out of the blue, uh, is really, uh, uh, quite thrilling and, uh, I, I I must say I'm enjoying the entire process, and uh, more important, uh, uh, I feel honored by it. You know, when, you're, when your colleagues and the people with whom you shaped your whole career, uh, in effect, give you a, a pat on the back and say, good job, uh, that's made it very meaningful, very meaningful.
1: It's an understatement to say it's certainly richly deserved. And so congratulations again. Um, and Ellis Horvitz, uh, founding partner, Emeritus of Horvitz and Levy, thank you so much for being on the, the podcast. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, uh, okay, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise.
1: Thanks again, Phyllis Horvitz, for sharing some of his reflections. It was an honor speaking with him and i be to tender one more time. Congratulations for his induction into the California Lawyers Association's Pellet Lawyer Hall of Fame. Thanks also to David Oxelrad and Barry Levy for sharing some time. And thank you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget to find our show on the various podcast avenues where it is now available. You can search for us in iTunes or the podcast app, or really wherever you get your podcast by searching "Weekly Appellate Report." Finding us there and also rating or reviewing us is tremendously appreciated. Helps other folks find the podcast as well. I'm Brian Cardo, have a great week.